Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 73. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $279 each, and everybody's favorite LTB coins are trading at .000088 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty dog, Maxwell, by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Long-time listeners, thank you so much for joining us and for your generous tips. And new listeners, kick back and enjoy the show. On today's show, I interview Kevin McKernan, the chief scientist of medicinal genomics and Cortigen Life Sciences. Kevin talks to us about everything from the Human Genome Project gone bad to free market regulations and testing in the cannabis field, families moving to Colorado to help their children get relief from epileptic seizures, the opiate crisis in America, and how Bitcoin blockchain technology is helping us move toward personalized medicine and away from the dangers inherent in one-size-fits-all herd medicine. All right, listeners, today I am speaking with the chief scientist of medicinal genomics and cortigen life sciences, talking to me from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, Kevin McKernan. Kevin, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thanks, John, for having me. This is a very... uh frequented podcast I listen to in my commutes to work, so I'm excited to be part of it. Oh, nice to hear it, man. And, you know, when you were in town, I really enjoyed getting together with you at Drifter's Barbecue and uh, sharing a couple of beers. That was probably the most intellectually stimulating conversation I've had in a decade, and <laughs> which may be testament to who I'm surrounding myself with, either that or you just happen to be a highly intelligent, articulate, and engaging individual, which I found to be true. I'm going to blame it on East Nashville. It's, not <laughs> <me>. <laughs> it's East Nashville, man. I'm I'm surrounded by the the dullards and the daft. Okay, that's good news. <laughs> no, certainly that's not true. Well, okay, so you're the chief scientist, the CSO of uh, medicinal genomics and cortigen life sciences. Tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about your background and also the work that you're doing or have done with ICRS, which is the International Cannabinoid Research Society. Start wherever you want, man. Oh well, my my start in this. Is, uh, it's, I think it's a very interesting story for folks in Bitcoin because I started off on a government project sequencing uh, the Human Genome Project at MIT, mm-hmm. and I was you know cheering that along, saying rah rah, we've got to show that the public sector can actually do good science uh, because a, a, a private sector competitive company entered the space called Solera Genomics. Uh, claiming they're going to do it 10 times faster and for less money and all this stuff. And the vilifying aspect of them was they were going to patent a couple genes in the process. And so uh, I I got an ulcer in the process of running the research and development team on that project, uh, trying to beat them to the punch. And in the end, uh, a couple presidents declared it a tie. But actually, I think Hmm. the private sector won. Uh, in many ways, and that uh, the the public or government sector of this ended up with more patents than the private sector did. So it was. Uh, I learned a hard lesson of um, of working in government science. Well, let, uh, expl- explain to our listeners, if you would, what might be bad about those patents, or what might be good about those patents. There's two sides to the story, and two different opinions on it. I know where I stand, and I know where you stand. Yeah, so I'm guilty as all hell having lots of patents in my name, but that's a history that, uh, when you get into sciences, you recognize it's a currency of this field, and it's very hard to start any company without them. And so, with all that said, it's uh, not something any one person can single-handedly ignore or uproot, but I've come to learn over time that they're they're just incredibly, um, they consume a lot of resources and they don't necessarily help science or uh, innovation. Uh, it's more of a control mechanism. So I don't, and particularly gene patents are really bad because there's thousands of genes. It's, it's mindless for people to patent these things. Uh, but uh, they get in the way of uh, now that we have technologies that we never envisioned back then to sequence entire genomes for thousands of dollars, uh, when their gene patents you know, littered everywhere, it makes a complete mess of uh, this field. 20% of the human genome was patented. Um, wow. So mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's very difficult to navigate around. But I, I jumped out of that government project into starting companies and 
in 2000, we started my own company with my two brothers called Agincourt Biosciences. And uh, it went about making, well, running DNA sequencing as a service, but also uh, building a new next generation sequencer. And so my life has been mm-hmm. about building a lot of these next gen sequencers and competing with them in the marketplace. Uh, and those companies went through several rounds of being sold and new startups. Uh, and the latest uh, rendition of this is trying to put a lot of that horsepower into diseases that are centered around the endocannabinoid system mm-hmm. and also looking at uh, the genetics of cannabis. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is the reason why I'm wearing two hats of, as a CSO of two different companies is, is one is very, very much human focused and personalized medicine focused on sequencing humans, mostly in epilepsy and autism and uh, developmental delay and mitochondrial disease, all mm-hmm. of those kind of center around um, the endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. And then the other branch of the company is very much focused on plant genetics and safety testing and cannabis. And um, those two things do come together with Bitcoin in a very unexpected way, which uh, we can perhaps dive into uh, in, in a bit. Wow, wow. Yeah, that's great stuff. This is exciting. I think a lot of the listeners now are poised to hear something that maybe they have never even thought of before. Yeah, where do we start with this, man? Some of the most exciting pharmacology that I've seen, and, and this is where the ICRS comes into it. I went to that meeting last year, and it is such a phenomenal meeting to go to because, uh, well, first off, if you're a scientist and you're going to that conference, you have to have enough of an open mind to see through a lot of crap. Let's make sure that our listeners know the ICRS, again, is the International Cannabinoid Research Society. Okay, go ahead. Yes, yeah. So this is, this is a scientific conference that studies all the different receptors in the body that respond to cannabinoids and trying to sort out how this complex mixture of chemicals from the plant can be as medicinal as it is. Uh, and how we can best utilize that. Well, when you get into a scientific room filled with people that are studying this, you recognize you're around individuals who can think differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not constrained with um, sort of the uh, the mainstream media opinion on matters. They're studying, they're, they're going where the science is taking them, which means they're very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a great conference, but it's also a conference that's unveiling to us an entirely untapped uh, pharmaceutical repertoire um, that has been illegal for so long that people have had um, a, a difficult time studying it. And it ends up being a very international conference because we have uh, most of this research is getting done in, not in the United States. It's getting done mostly in Israel and, and Italy and the UK and Spain, mm-hmm. um, just due to uh, regulatory reasons. So uh, that makes it for a fun place. But it, uh, what um, is really exciting about it is we're just now starting to see some of these laws lift. And much more uh, research is getting popped into the research dollars are getting popped into the field hmm. so that people can begin to tease apart the nature of cannabis and what are the compounds that are in, in that are in this plant that are helping and how do we classify all the different plants that are out there because uh, cannabis just call it one thing is, is really foolish and that's that's where a lot of the prior studies somewhat failed is they all studied this as marijuana. They never stop to chemically analyze, well, what is it? Does it have THC in it? Does it have CBD in it? Does it have these other 12 cannabinoids? Mm -hmm. And so that whole spectrum of pharmacology is just now coming alive right as we have personalized medicine tools at our fingertips, the ability to sequence every single patient, understand, and perhaps match their, their genotype to the right chemistry that might come out of the plants. And that's what we're trying to do. Wow, that's great stuff. You know, I've always said that 100 years from now, people will look back and they'll say, wow, at this point in time, people were all taking the same pill for whatever disease they were diagnosed with or whatever ailment. Whereas in the future, 100 years from now, certainly less than that, the medication that you take will be specific to your own individual body, right? It it will. And it's absolute herd medicine today where we try to have these one size fits all uh, regulatory approvals for a certain drug. And the, the, the clinical trials at the FDA are never adequate enough to address the entire population and the diversity that the drug's going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's because of this centralized planning that um, I think we're seeing the, the backfire at the FDA. I mean, there, I know a lot of people there. They're great scientists, but it's the regulatory structure they're in that doesn't afford decentralization. It doesn't afford any competition mm-hmm. um, that, that creates these drugs that kill. Um, and the Independent Institute's got great work on called FDAreview.org on all the deaths from the FDA. Hmm, hmm, interesting. And so it's a very serious topic. Um, and uh, what we're starting to see in the cannabis field is um, there's some tendency for people to want to force things through that, that structure, although I'd argue that's uh, you can't really get afford to go through that structure unless you have IP and unless you have patents. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult to get in cannabis. 
but we're also seeing very voluntary free market regulation, which which reminds me of the whole Bitcoin space because hmm. this is the way to go. We know this looking at Uber and Airbnb and VRBO that there's an eBay. There are ways to get free market feedback um, that are far more decentralized and probably much more effective from a pricing standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this this actually happened in cannabis. It has a role in what we're doing at Medicinal Genomics, and that ca- California doesn't really have any, has the least amount of regulatory structure for cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet out of California, what we see are voluntary um, testing facilities looking for cannabinoid concentrations, looking for yeast and mold, sometimes terpenes and a couple other, um, you know, heavy metals and pesticides that might be on the plant. All of this got voluntarily put into place in California markets without a regulator, you know, demanding it so. Uh, but what is happening now is regulators are stepping in front of that great idea like it's their parade and claiming, uh, let's replicate that and stamp it all over the industry. Hmm. Uh, and and once again, what we see when that happens is they take one snapshot of what they think is the right regulatory framework and virally replicate it state to state. And then you find uh, aspects of the technology that are like baked into 1892 technologies hmm. Uh, and this uh, this is this has got to change. This is what we're trying to do at medicinal genomics: is get rid of uh, this petri dish stuff that everyone's using to test for mold and bacteria on cannabis. It's uh, it's it's not an effective tool to use. Yeah, you know, you mentioned 1892. That's about the time that the pharmaceutical companies started growing here in the United States, and some of the big investors in those pharmaceutical companies said to universities, "Hey, we will help fund your medical school in exchange for you adopting this curriculum." Of course, the curriculum was very heavily pharmaceutical based because the people suggesting this were basically investors in the pharmaceutical companies, and so we've seen the history of that just continue with the pharmaceutical cartels. Yeah. And the regulators, yeah, regulatory capture, exactly. Frightening stuff, but very real and something that your average person is completely clueless about. Yeah, so just to give folks a sense of this time gap, and and, and I'm sure the Bitcoin space, which moves at light speed, is going to laugh at the fact that we're inking regulation on Petri dishes, which is, uh, this is the same era when the paperclip was invented. That's how how cutting edge it is. (laughs) Oh, man. I think the incandescent bulb, you can tie a lot of things back to the late 1800s, but uh, it's not changed much. The, The American herbal pharmacopoeia is what's used, the AHP, and this thing just keeps getting um, re-stamped from one industry to the next, from the food testing and safety markets, now into the cannabis testing market, and what we've been doing is building, um, uh, is changing that whole paradigm, because uh, this whole idea of growing uh, things on plates assumes you know the carbon source for these these microbes, and Mm -hmm. that's that's a big fallacy in culture, is that only like 1% of the microbes do we know how to culture, so really looking at the world of, of microbiology through a terrible um, a priori lens when you hmm. do that. Uh, what we're doing at medicinal genomics is converting that all over to just reading the DNA that's sitting on the plant. Like hmm. it's a microbiome type of study. You strip all the DNA off and sequence it uh, or use quantitative PCR to figure out what's the microbial load that's there. Wow. And then, then you can get much more specific about it. You don't have to... Um, be wholesale, just counting little colonies that show up on petri dishes and assuming every one of those colonies is bad. Hmm. Usually, you know, a, a different ninety percent of the bugs are harmless. They're 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 almost like your microbiome in your gut. You you need some of it to survive. You can't just wipe it all out or or you'll die. Right. Uh, and so you have to really differentiate between you know good bugs and bad bugs. Uh, and we just don't have those tools with the, with the 1892 technology. And uh, you know it's our job to run around and educate some of these regulators that they're they're pressing these things into into regulation. And what's going to happen is you're going to create an enormous uh, ev- evolutionary pressure or selection against certain plants when you do this, because some some genetics require a certain set of microbes to actually grow. Hmm. And if you don't have them, they get hit with other pests like botrytis and fusarium and all these other like plant blights. Um, and so th- that, um, that aspect's kind of fun because we're showing the world that, uh, hey, look, there's an entirely new technology that can measure what's going on in these plants. It's better, faster, cheaper, uh, but it's also more specific and we're not going to put in these really, um, you know, uh, grotesque and, and, and dull filters where we screen out a whole set of plant genetics that can't make it through this microbial um, constraint that they've put onto Petri dishes. Hmm. Um, so that, that's gotten us kind of uh, excited about how do, how do we get this information public? How do we share the information? Mm-hmm. And how do we 
monitor the genetics of the plants because this evolutionary pressure that's about to happen on the plant with all this regulation, it's going, it's going to change the face of the genetics that are out there in the marketplace. Um, so we have come up with this concept of leveraging the blockchain to register all of the genetics that are floating around in circulation. And that's something that I think many people in this audience could probably help us with or guide us or, or even be a part of because we think it's going to be just absolutely instrumental to make this field into a world-class scientific endeavor. Wow, that almost sounds like you're putting out a call for help from people that have been in the Bitcoin world for years who have the tech background, who are maybe looking for a project to work on. Um, is there any money for anybody out there who would be willing to jump in and, and help with this, or is yes, it just fame and fortune? No, no, there's a little bit of both. I mean, I've got to give a shout out to Christian Saucier and David Medfazian. They both already jumped in and helped out a little bit. Um, these are friends of, of um, Michael Dean and Nima Vidati, they connected us to get this kickstarted. There's already a website up that's dedicated to this, and we presented on this at, at the ICRS. It was very well received, but we are hiring, actually. We just went through a funding round, and the company pulled in $20 million, so it was an oversubscribed funding round, and we will be hiring specifically on this project. But, nice. Um, the... Uh, the concept here is that there's a strain name going on in the field that's really important to resolve. And the reason it's happening is because you can't get trademarks or copyright in the cannabis field. You might be able to get some patent protection on certain methods, but you can't get it on the trademark or copyright front. So what that's induced is a, a fair amount of counterfeiting in the field because there is a spread on the, on the price of cannabis based on name. I mean, it's probably two or threefold in price where you can get a premium for top name strains. But there's no guarantee the strain's actually it when you get it. Give us an example of that. Oh, I think, yeah, right now a really common one that's, that's probably capturing more cash is Blue Dream. Uh, the Marley family announced they're going to put out a strain, so I'm sure that will capture a premium, a premium number. Willie Nelson's talking about putting one out, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I mean, all of these folks are going to have the, you know, a strain of their own. Um, and you can see it in alcohol too, right? There's there's bottles of wine that can go for you know five or tenfold the price of uh, of, of like a yellowtail, right? And, and so uh, the, the the problem is that the bottles of wine have nice labels, uh, the, the the bags of cannabis do not, and hmm. uh, that's made it very difficult for people to even capture a bigger spread because there's some doubt that whatever you're buying is really that different unless you've got a really good nose for uh, <laughs> for smelling and detecting what, what it is you're actually after. Right. If you're a weed connoisseur, you take a smell and you say, oh, hints of chocolate and coffee with an after. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we want to objectify all that because we know all of those terpenes are measurable genetically. And so uh, what we're aiming to do is take a, a DNA fingerprint of the plant. And once that fingerprint has been taken, we etch its proof of existence into a blockchain mm -hmm. and then provide whoever submitted that to be fingerprinted a Wikipedia page that they can edit. And the only thing they can't edit is the, obviously, the proof of existence. Otherwise, it, it changes the validity of that. Right. Uh, but what we're trying to generate is a distributed consensus on what cannabis actually is. Like, what are the species' names? Hmm. But when we sequenced the genome of cannabis back in 2011, we sequenced to ChemDog 91. And everyone kind of came to us saying, well, how do you know you, you had the right strain? And are you sure it was actually ChemDog and not a, not a counterfeit? And, it, it, and that, that debate has never ended. And I don't think it ever will hmm. until we start fingerprinting things and building a registry that's based on DNA mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, people scribbling with uh, ink on, on a baggie. Uh, mm -hmm. as to what they think it is. Okay, now, so other than, you know, somebody likes the high they get from, you know, White Widow versus the high they get from another strain, what is the real importance of this project? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that back. So it, it does, it focuses back on, like, the medical uh, issue, in my mind, because... Um, the cannabinoids in the plant do very different things, and you'll see um, a lot of stuff on TV right now about one compound of the plant called cannabidiol, or, or CBD. Mm -hmm. And the, the kids that are taking this to reduce their seizures uh, don't necessarily want any THC around. Mm -hmm. uh, at least the parents don't, and maybe the politicians don't. But mm -hmm. there's a separate class of patients that don't respond to CBD. They actually need another compound called THCA, which is a carboxylated form of THC that also is not psychoactive unless you heat it. Hmm. All right. So, but both of these two non-psychoactive compounds are showing tremendous promise in epilepsy. I mean, it's, it's not like a minor 
a thing here. There's even an FDA trial going on showing that CBD, when it's purified alone, away from the other compounds of the plant, is help is giving a 50% reduction in seizure rate of, of these kids. And these are drug-resistant kids with epilepsy. Can you give us a little bit of a background? Um, I know I read an article about the young girl named Charlotte. Yeah, we're involved in a, in a clinical trial there as well, studying. Um, we're sequencing 30 kids out at Denver Health that are on Charlotte's Web. And the reason we want to sequence them is that we've seen this artifact in the other trial, like the GW Pharma trial that's trying to put this through the FDA, where half the kids get better, uh, 15% of them get worse. And so if we can figure out which 15% get worse and why, mm-hmm. um, and that we can potentially screen them, that makes uh, a, a big difference to the healthcare industry. Because when a kid's seizure rate goes up, they usually get hospitalized. And you start talking about $20,000 a day in, in additional costs if they get hospitalized. So it's really important for them to be able to know and predict who's going to respond and who isn't going to respond. Okay, tell us first, if you would, give us a little bit of background. I hate to stop you from your progress here, but to sequence a human being, tell our listeners what that means in a nutshell. So there's about 6 billion bases in your genome, and only 1% of those actually code for proteins that we really know how to uh, analyze today. The, the stuff that's in the uh, introns and the, in the uh, regulatory regions, we don't clinically look at much today. But if you're going to sequence a patient in the clinical environment, which is a whole other regulatory discussion about CLIA and CAP regulation, you have to really, you tend to focus on just the coding regions. So the test that Corrigan Life Sciences has been using in all of these epilepsy studies sequences about 500 genes that we know are involved in epilepsy. And there's about 40 different contraindications uh, where you have a particular variant, you can't take a certain drug, or you'll like blow out your liver, or you'll hmm. have a, an adverse response. Okay. Um, and so those 500 genes make up about 7 million bases or so that we sequence in each patient. People just give us saliva, and we can sequence their, you know, either all of their, all of their genes, all 20,000 of them, down to maybe 50 of them, depending on what the doctor wants done. Wow. Um, but that's, um, that's been being used in a lot of these studies to see which patients are responding and not responding to CBD. And we're starting to see some signals that predict, hmm. uh, okay, you will or you won't respond. Wow. Uh, and how this ties into the cannabis front is that um, even though this FDA trial is going through, it is a single compound trial, and we know that those are usually flawed, uh, and it probably won't be available for four years. Uh, meanwhile, every parent who's seen the weed episode from Sanjay Gupta is moving to Colorado or Seattle to get access to this through the dispensaries, hmm. and the dispensaries are, uh, are, are taking plant material and not isolating any compounds, so the parents have to figure out, is this really a high CBD Charlotte's Web, like what you saw uh, Paige and, and Charlotte Figgy go through? Mm-hmm. Or is this something that's got a little mix of both, like ACDC has a little bit more THC in it? Knowing those cannabinoid ratios is, is pretty critical. Uh, likewise, labeling in the field now, it's not just about getting high. It's, it's about actually finding the right cannabinoid profile for the right patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brings in a much stronger emphasis for, uh, for labeling. Okay, give us a background really quickly, if you would, about Charlotte's Web, what that is, and who came up with that. So uh, that's a little, I can't really vouch for who came up with it because, again, we don't really – these strains have all been renamed, uh-huh. uh, although I think the Stanley Brothers will claim they came up with it. You'll hear many people contest that saying, no, that's an R4 strain or that's an ACDC strain that got pulled out of California uh-huh. and, you know – all this finger pointing on, on who's lying to who. Okay. But we know it's low in THC and high in CBD. Yeah, we can measure those compounds. And in mm-hmm. the end, the, measuring the compounds is really critical. I'm not going to suggest that genetics is ever going to completely get rid of that. Uh, but the easiest thing to measure uh, that has uh, properties that you can compare and build phylogenetic trees with is DNA. Because mm-hmm. when we start sequencing the DNA, we can begin to say, wait, we, don't, we, don't, we know that this is not only Charlotte's Web, but we can actually figure out who its parents are. Uh, and how it's been crossed throughout time uh, Hmm. to figure out all the other strains we might want to consider crossing to make something similar to it. Hmm. Uh, So the genetics provide a whole different layer of breeding information that we think is ultimately going to be the fingerprint that the QR code that sits on a bag will eventually be linked to a blockchain proof of existence uh, genetic file that that tells you what that strain is. So this concept of seed to sale regulation you might have heard of in Colorado Mm -hmm. where they have to have RFIDs tracking seeds everywhere, Mm -hmm. that's kind of arcane. You should just read the genome and then you can always re-query whether or not it is what it is 
uh, by by sequencing. So while in the future, a parent can take their child who is having seizures, epileptic seizures, let's say they could take them in and for a low price, eventually they could have their child sequenced, right? Yeah. That would then determine the exact strain of marijuana that they should take. And obviously the child's not going to be smoking it. They're going to be ingesting it as an oil or a capsule, right? A gel cap or whatever. And that can then get really specific in addressing their problem and stopping their seizures. Indeed. Yeah, that's that's the goal is to actually personalize all this. And I, I do think that's what's needed even in the FDA model is that whether it goes through dispensary or FDA, um, this whole process of herd medicine needs a creative destruction. Uh, we have to personalize this because this concept of applying one drug to everybody now that the human population is so mixed is just insane. Who does that personalizing threaten? Well, it probably does threaten some pharma if they're narrow-minded in that um, they now recognize that the diagnostic companies can wag the dog of the pharma. Uh, and that this puts more power in the hands of the people who do the testing mm-hmm. that, that that dictate who gets their drug. Um, but but that power shift is somewhat already occurring on them and that the insurance companies are beginning to refuse to pay for dirty drugs and they're beginning to refuse to pay for drugs that have uh, at, you know a high adverse response rate. Uh, mm-hmm. and they're beginning to become more and more receptive to the concept of what's known as a companion diagnostic test where you take a test, a genetic test that tells you, okay, you're good for this drug or you're not. Or if you're going to take this warfarin drug, you need to take more of it because your genetics dictate that uh, you're going to, you're a fast metabolizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that is just starting to move its way into the marketplace, uh, and some of it's going to move its way through you know more traditional regulatory channels. But I'd argue that those aren't as well adaptable to this than these other more market-based regulatory markets, like uh, the this dispensary cannabis market. I think actually is quite reflexive and more open market and i think you're gonna we're gonna find a lot more discoveries in that process Mm -hmm. uh, because the the families all share this kind of information on facebook and social media and and they're way ahead of how to utilize these cannabinoids and anyone in the fda One thing that I carry with me proudly wherever I go is my Bitcoin keychain. One of the great things about being in the Bitcoin sphere is the amazingly talented and creative people that we get to meet. Rob Mitchell, the host of the Bitcoin game, is definitely no exception to this rule. I first met Rob in person at the Texas Bitcoin Conference earlier this year, and we had a great time talking about everything Bitcoin related. But what really knocked my socks off was a gift that Rob gave me that I carry with me each and every day, wherever I go. That is my Bitcoin keychain. My Bitcoin keychain is brass plated and basically looks like a physical Bitcoin. It has a nice hefty weight to it, and it feels good in my hand. My Bitcoin keychain serves as a constant reminder to me of the power that Bitcoin has to change the world for the better, to empower me, and to empower people around the world. To get your own Bitcoin keychain, just head over to bkeychain.com. That's the letter B, keychain.com. For about the price of a burger and a beer, you can own your own Bitcoin keychain today and carry it with you throughout the years while we watch from our front row seats as this amazing, earth-changing drama unfolds before our very eyes. Get your Bitcoin keychain today by going to bkeychain.com. Do you have some sources that you could pass over to us so that I could put those in the show notes? Oh, you bet. Yes, absolutely. We'll Man. We can link to some of these uh, these Facebook groups that uh, that discuss these topics. And it's really fascinating to see because you can start to see there's a paper that came out last week in this field, um, which really was derived, I think, from these Facebook groups and that everyone began to see that when you put kids on CBD – if they're on a couple other antileptic drugs, um, they get a different response. And it's because these drugs all share a common liver enzyme that they get metabolized by. Hmm. So when you put them on CBD, 
suddenly that liver enzyme is taxed or, in, or inhibited, and then they can't process the other AED that they're on, the other anti-epileptic drug that they're on, mm-hmm. and, and they get overdosing from that other drug. And the parents all started noticing this with Clobazam and CBD, that there's a bad mix. And now we're seeing papers come out of MGH showing, oh, yep, that's true. Uh, when we go and measure this in a clinical trial, we can see that CBD, it can elevate the Clobazam levels in some kids, and we huh. have to be sure to monitor this uh, when we're doing it. Um, and wow. I don't think that those stories are often heard. You always assume it came from like the FDA down, but it's really grassroots up that's happening in, in some of these fields, and it's exciting to see. Very interesting. Yeah, concerned parents noticing things because they're their children. So let's talk a little bit about uh, other pains. For instance, I have chronic arthritis in my hands and also bone spurs in my neck and back problems for many years now. Some of these strains, some of the CBD, might these be able to help me with my pain? Yeah, so the, the pain market's fascinating uh, because there really hasn't been much innovation there in like 40 years. It's just been opiate after opiate that are with slight modifications, and we've all seen where that's gone. It's turned into methadone clinics. It's turned into a heroin epidemic. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like 80% of the heroin overdoses are linked back to an Oxycontin prescription. Wow. So, you know, there's a real gateway effect there. Uh, what people don't know is that there's an anti-gateway effect with CBD. There's, there's three clinical trials ongoing using CBD to get people off of nicotine, alcohol, and heroin. Wow. Uh, and so um, this, you know, there are these political uh, frenzied people who tend to claim it's a gateway drug or just have it completely backwards. Hmm. Um, so this compound has shown some, some luck in, in pain. And we, we've been doing some work in that area as well. We, so Cortigen sequences about four or 500 patients a month, and that's been growing uh, quite rapidly. But in doing so, um, there was one group of patients that came through with chronic pain and chronic fatigue. And we just went, you know, database sleuthing to figure out what do they have in common genetically and out a paper that we just published um, last month on a particular variant that's in 1% to 2% of the population uh, that causes chronic pain. Hmm. And now it's not all chronic pain. Chronic pain is a huge category. But sure. even so, 1% to 2% uh, is really important from a physician standpoint because you, know, you walk into your physician's office, they, they have a very subjective definition of pain. And they're nervous about handing out drugs on subjective measurements because mm-hmm. they don't know if you're just coming in for your next hit or if you actually are in pain. Right. Uh, what we're hoping to do with genetics is to objectify this with real measurements that you have a genetic mutation that implies you're going to have chronic pain. And this one, there's a few patients that have this one that are responding really well to antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one known as N-acetylcysteine. But um, CBD would probably be better. It's a more effective antioxidant that gets through the blood-brain barrier. And uh, we have to try and find a way to, to organize a study that, can, that proves that, that CBD actually does work for these particular patients. But you can see that this is going to play um, a much more important role for pharmaceutical companies that are used to having their way of just pumping out another opiate. Uh, when they start to see that people are putting these connections together, that, okay, there's a genotype that predicts that you should take something that might come from Whole Foods or a dispensary, I think they're going to have to pick up and take notice of this uh, and start deploying some of these personalized medicine tools into their own drug pipeline or face uh, an obsolescence moment. Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, for me, I have worked in the trades for many years doing framing and digging, using a shovel and landscaping and working with power tools. And I know a lot of people still that are in the trades. And a lot of these guys have chronic pain from having fallen or from having just overworked. We see a lot of this with people coming back from Afghanistan where they were just, you know, beaten up by what they went through there and the heavy backpacks and knee problems, hip problems, all kinds of physical problems. But what I see, good friend of mine, Jerry Ward, he has alcohol issues, but when he goes into a doctor and he says, I've got this chronic pain because he fell off scaffolding years ago and, you know, I try to fix it with my alcohol, right? And the doctor says, no, 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 you need, you know, Oxycontin or you need this other drug that just happens to be very, very addictive. Well, okay. So they help Jerry wean himself off of alcohol by putting him on these highly addictive drugs. And now he has to pay $350 a month to get these drugs that he's addicted to now. So he's basically going back to his pusher, these doctors out there. Well, they call themselves doctors. You know, some of them are, some of them are just pushers pushing something that the pharmaceutical reps have convinced them is going to be good for their patients. Well, if you were to ask the doctor, can you give us the specifics of how this works? Well, they might be able to give you a pamphlet or to repeat verbatim what the pharmaceutical rep has memorized, but the doctor does not have a laboratory. The doctor does not have oftentimes a background in working in a laboratory. They can't afford their own laboratory. So in other words, they're just listening to what the talking heads there, the pharmaceutical reps are 
paid to say to them, they're passing that information on to their patients and saying, this is something that's going to be good to you with no real knowledge about the side effects or the long-term effects is a better way to put it. And I think it's basically like the methadone clinics. I think it's just uh, government-sanctioned drug dealing. Oh, it is. It is. And they've put all these... um Regulations in the name of safety, of course, uh, on top of the field that prevent doctors from sharing notes on patients like this and uh, makes it very difficult to move medical information around and do studies, um, Hmm. which is why I'm very optimistic about some of the more free market approaches because we're starting to see patient groups make um, it's 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 for the for the patients to share data. That's fine. Just it's correcting ethically. Like your your medical data is your medical data, and only you should be the one who can control sharing it. But a lot of these these people are sharing it in social media. Hmm. If a company or physician were to try and share any of that, they uh, they go through a HIPAA violation, and it, it'd be uh, all types of paperwork and fun. Wow. Um, so there's there are some challenges and barriers that are, that are put in place to sort these problems out. At, once you get across the line into the private sector, or once you're a physician that's involved in this equation, um, it becomes very difficult to, to actually do any kind of studies. Like if we, if we want to fund a physician to say, look, you have all of these patients that have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will offer to sequence them all for you as long as you give us their clinicals. Um, because we really need the clinical phenotype to do this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's incredibly difficult to do because you're not allowed to actually do anything for free for a doctor, and you're also not allowed to help them. And the first thing they'll do if they say, yes, I love this idea, is that I just need I need your help uh, to get an intern in here to get all the records out. Uh, and you can't do that. You're not allowed to fund an intern at, at another physician's office. Even if it's just to collect medical records to do paperwork, it's considered a stark violation. Um, there's all types of regulatory mess that is in place uh, on the medical side where I'm more optimistic that we're going to see is uh, a free market solution where patients that are free to share these notes on their own find social networks that enable it to happen and move the science forward. Wow, man. <laughs> that is heavy stuff. So we're looking toward the private sector, really, and that's our future, we hope, right? I'm very much a, a free market advocate on this in that yeah. I inherently don't trust organizations that don't have competition. Yeah. And most people in the United States don't recognize that the regulatory body that sits over the medical industry has no competition. Hmm. Um, and this is probably why prices are rising. This is something that we have seen John Goodman write really elegantly about in uh, in his book called Priceless, that uh, once you remove the pricing signal from the marketplace, um, there is it's impossible to innovate. You don't know what to <laughs> fix. <laughs> and that's what we see going on in the healthcare industry right now is that you have, t- you have co-pays, you have caps, you have forced insurance, uh, you have forced pricing. Uh, it, it becomes very difficult to know where to innovate. Um, but the more of this that goes uh, out into the concierge medicine market or into the free market medicine, mm-hmm. um, you're going to start to find people re- you know, being independent and relying on themselves to go to a dispensary and figure out what is the right terpene or the right cannabinoid or, uh, or the, you know, maybe it's not even from the cannabis plant, but something that uh, addresses their particular disease based on the public literature. Um, and we're seeing it happening in droves right now. There's just a, an onslaught of people, not just young children with epilepsy. We're starting to see it in the Alzheimer arena. We're starting to see it even in the age-related diseases that people are turning to this option because we, we can't just wait for four-year trials. Yes, yes, well stated. What do you think are the reasons why the research into cannabis, generally speaking, over the past hundred years, what are the reasons why that has been so slow coming? There's a couple examples of obvious regulatory capture when you go back to 1937. Uh, the whole history of um, of hemp, I won't, I won't, you know, come over here. But clearly, there was a Dupont issue where they they were threatened by um, the ability to turn that into paper mm-hmm. and went about a campaign to regulate it. Um, and since then, uh, I think the challenge people have had is that the current healthcare system and and uh, pharmaceutical industry cannot operate without IP. Right. Uh, you cannot afford an $800 million drug trial if you don't have a patent guaranteeing you a artificial monopoly when you get out of that, that artificial price. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I mean, the, the issue is self-inflicted by the FDA. Their, their costs keep going up. Um, and uh, it, it seems like they got a big land grab, they being the FDA, after the thalidomide debacle in the 60s and were granted a lot more right to regulate. Uh, and most Americans don't recognize that that right to regulate has created an increase in deaths with a decrease of new chemical entities. And this is all documented really well at the Independent Institute, and we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for folks who haven't seen this. But okay. uh, I think when uh, – and, and, and we're seeing it today right now as this is starting to get legalized – 
everyone's trying to clamor to find get find, you know, trying to get some kind of patent right on cannabis, and it's uh, I don't think they're going to get it. It's just one of those things where it's mm-hmm. it's too many. It's been there's too much prior art, mm-hmm. uh, and there is uh, you can't get it with genetics very easily anymore. All the data that we did in 2011, we put public on the web immediately, just so that we wouldn't end up with the human genome mess that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that has been part of the the constraint is that if you're going to try and pull a chemical out of that out of that plant, and then you have to go to the FDA for 800 million dollar trial, you're probably not going to get that money back. Uh, right. And so. I think that's been the, the the main issue. There's also the scheduling of this making it really difficult. The people who are running these um, these epilepsy trials, even though it's CBD and it's not psychoactive, they're forcing them to put in like three thousand pound safes into the hospitals that run the trial. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and cameras and all types of badges and everything in case someone runs off with a with a non psychoactive compound. You know, oh man. Yeah, so <laughs> that's the type of mentality that's behind this uh, scare campaign. So I, I think that's the main issue. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if they can, if we can find a way to, to get people uh, educated and over that um, and to completely deschedule this, um, I'm quite optimistic that there are, there are free market ways to leapfrog this. Uh, the creative yeah. instruction, I think, that is needed at the FDA is a competitor. And I think I see the, uh, the over-the-counter open access of the cannabinoid profile of this plant being lar- it's a larger pharmaceutical repertoire than all of Merck and Pfizer. Wow. And it's about to go over the counter and open source for everyone. Uh, and if you have that with personalized medicine, and they're very safe compounds, the, the, there's some limitless possibilities there to change healthcare. Uh, and it may not necessarily have to all go through $800 million drug trials. We can probably sort this out with much cheaper studies that aren't conflicted with the regulatory capture that you see in the FDA. And the biggest change, the last point here in the FDA, is mm-hmm. that in 1992, folks should look up the PDUFA Act. It's P-D-U-F-A. All right. This is a a opportunity. I guess you'll, you'll they'll probably word it as where um, it's called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. What that means is that the pharmaceutical companies can now pay the FDA to defray the cost of their study. Hmm. Uh, so, in any other business, that's just called a regulatory bribe. Right. Uh, but it's called the Padufa Act in in pharma lingo, <laughs> uh, and uh, and since that point. You know, the, the the street drugs aren't killing people. It's the FDA drugs that are killing people. Wow. Uh, and so that's an, an area that I think every voter, if you believe in that, should recognize you have no capacity as a voter to change anything going out the FDA, yet they control life or death situations on what you can put in your body. Wow. So scare tactics again and again from these you know, what you could call cartels, the pharmaceutical cartel putting out scare tactics to continue to do what they do unabated, making as much money as they can and with almost complete disregard for the negative side effects, including diminished health for people and death. Yeah, and I, I, to be honest, I don't know how much of it is is um, that we could probably philosophize about this all day. I often wonder how much of it's intentional. You know, I think it's just these folks using the levers they're forced to use to run their compounds through government regulations, mm-hmm. and in the end is an outcome that looks pretty sinister, but it's probably all paved in good intentions. Well, I think the intention is, from the pharmaceutical company perspective, I think the intention, it's not singular, but you could almost say that it is profit, period. Yes, yeah, there, there is. And profit can be such a dirty word, right? So I, I, I don't have an issue with like the Austrian economics definition of profit, where both parties actually profit in exchange. I agree. Uh, but in the pharma sense, there is so much regulatory capture that it's hard to view that as win-win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, and uh, it's too contorted uh, to 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 put an Austrian theme around that. It's, I agree. It's, it's uh, so yes. There's definitely some greed going on, and uh, you know the patent system uh, doesn't necessarily um, afford any win-win. Right? It, it's a, it's effectively handing out artificial monopolies. Um, yeah. that are government granted, and it's not very um, thorough at, at, in its process. The USPTO makes tons of mistakes, yeah. uh, and the patents they issue are often overlapping, redundant, or just conflicting, and, and the lawyers went out. But hmm. um, it, nonetheless, it creates a huge deformation in the marketplace when these patent rights protrude into uh, every aspect of healthcare. Yeah, it's a big win-lose, really. I mean, just to yeah, call it what it yeah. is. Wow. <laughs> this is heavy stuff, Kevin. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's meant to be uplifting because it's about cannabis. Yeah, um, so, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but I, I encourage other folks to t- have a look at this Canopedia project. It's spelled with a K, 
And uh, this is uh, meant to be an online Wikipedia where we measure the phylogenetic tree of cannabis. And the reason we want this to be a Wikipedia and to be a distributed consensus problem is that I don't think anyone sage on the stage can figure out what the cannabis phylogenetic tree is. There's just too many species out there all over the globe for us to declare one is indica and one is sativa and, and all that silliness. Mm -hmm. I think it all has to stem from a nice, good genetic architecture. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's going to help guide people to finding the right drugs, is, is that, okay, this plant it comes from this line, and we know it tends to make a lot of beta-carophylline, which is a great CB2 agonist that's a terpene, and it's, there's hundreds and thousands of papers on this, on this compound. It's benign. It happens to work really well with CBD. So we want those genetics, and we want to cross those with this over here that has cannabivarin, which is a completely different compound the plant makes. Uh, and, and, and I think that is what's going to really aid bringing this whole um, pharmaceutical repertoire into the marketplace in a safe manner, mm -hmm. um, where we can begin to think about uh, the right regulatory structures for this. Um, it seems as if right now the FDA is willing to review the compounds that are purified, but they're staying away from the whole dispensary thing, which I think is a good thing because mm -hmm. it looks more nutraceutical and, and uh, the compounds in the plant are, are incredibly safe. I don't know how long that's going to last, but to the extent that that duality exists, there's going to be this marketplace for people to find therapeutics affordably hmm. uh, that fit them, that are safe, and that are personalized. And uh, we've never had a brighter moment, I think, in pharmaceutical history than what's happening right now because we have these two tools. We have this open source pharmacy that's coming, and we have the ability to measure everyone's genome. You know, with that, we want to make sure that we apply the same type of registration and science around the strain names, because right now, this isn't going to happen if there's a strain name going on. If people are just counterfeiting one strain for another, everyone's going to get confused in the data. Right. Well, yeah, this is exciting stuff, and I wonder how far-reaching are the tentacles of the international uh, drug cartel, the international pharmaceutical cartel, so in other countries, you know, what is the equivalent of their FDA? What are you seeing as far as, you know, regulations in other countries? You know, there's some countries that have just completely lifted. I, I think Uruguay is completely legal now. Um, Czech Republic, Spain, uh, Holland, and Portugal. A lot of these places, when they lift the regulations on cannabis, they, they see nothing but benefits. They see opioid um, overdoses go down like by 25%. They see mm. less alcohol consumption by like 9%. They see uh, I think the Portugal study is great on this. It shows um, that there are far less deaths from overdose because people are are now open about what they're doing. They're treating it like a disease, not a, not a criminality. Hmm. Um, and so this plays its way into all types of social factors. But I have a feeling that pharma, like any large institution, can be disintermediated to some extent if they're not agile in this marketplace. Mm -hmm. If they don't recognize that they have to get personalized and adapt, um, they're going to get left behind. Because uh, in the end, the market always moves. The market always moves them, and they can try to regulatory capture as much as they want, but um, it always finds a way. And uh, this is a, a voter-based initiative, if you will, or just a popularity contest that's not going to let this thing get clamped back down again. I think the genie's out of the bottle on, on the cannabis plant. Oh, I love uh, it. And, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Maybe I have rose-colored glasses, but uh, or green-colored glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, let's put on our green glasses and take a field trip to Uruguay. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, yeah, I've wanted to go to Denver. I interviewed a guy a while back, and I wrote a song, the official cryptocurrency currency song and it references taking a trip to denver and yeah i would love to go to denver and see what they could offer me that's either smokable or in terms of an oil that would help my chronic pain they have great transdermals there which are good for pain in that the transdermals bypass the liver oh, and wow. many many of the cannabinoids um when they go through the liver they change hmm. um the thc moves from delta 9 to 11 hydroxy thc which is like eight times more psychoactive and is a different drug and so a lot of people lose their mind on edibles because they're not uh, they metabolize it differently and don't anticipate that but the same thing is true with some of the transdermals that they go venously um, through your system and they can reach parts of your body before your liver metabolizes them and gives you a very different profile and you can apply them locally to where the pain is they're showing a lot of success with the cbd and cbn based transdermals um, there's even some THCA and THC ones they have. Um, it's a, uh, I think Mary's Medicinal has a few of them out, out in the Colorado area. But it's definitely worth a try. If you've got, you know, bone aches, 
And anything with um, osteoarthritis, there's all these papers coming out showing that it reverses that. Wow. And so um, there's a good reason to look into it. When you look at the other options that you have from the pharmaceutical industry, they're not really compelling. No, that's right. Listen, man, if you ever need someone to, you know, be in one of your trials or to test, I'm, I'm the guy. All right. Yeah. We are trying to organize a chronic pain study, actually, and it's... Um, uh, we're just at the earliest stages of this, so we'll keep that in mind because what we're we're looking for are people that we're going to screen them off for this particular variant in the TRAP1 gene to see who has it and who doesn't and then see if there's a response. Uh-huh. Um, but the amazing thing about this is there's so many users that you can do all these great like retrospective trials just by interview process and you know speaking with people, wow. uh, doing surveys that okay let's let's look for you know the millions of users that are out there let's look for other ones that have chronic pain and and find out whether CBD or THC is working for them. Uh, all mm-hmm. these types of studies are starting to kick off now that uh, people can leverage these types of social media mechanisms to do it. Man, that's exciting stuff. So you know, for me in particular, how would it work? You guys fly me to Denver, put me up in a nice hotel, and I just <laughs> I just I spend my time smoking different strains. Is that basically how it would work? Is no, there a, no, is there a no, food no. is there a food allowance? Or- <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, unfortunately, there's uh, there aren't some regulations involved in how we do these studies. So, uh, oh man, there's always an informed consent process, and uh, which is a lot of legalese for if you hurt yourself on this. You know, it's, uh, we don't have ambulance chasing lawyers coming after people, but um, there's uh, there's also usually a uh, after an informed consent. There's always, they tend to always do a placebo group and an anomalous group, and I don't think anyone's doing stuff with smoking because it's right. just considered you know politically. Uh, uh, despite uh, Donald Tashkin's work, it's it's still considered politi- political taboo. They're they're trying to go with edibles and yeah. uh, transdermals. Um, so I think that's where most of the the studies are happening. There's some going on in Montreal as well. Oh wow! Um, Canada, as you know, has um, is federally uh, medical. Yeah. So medical marijuana is legal across all of Canada federally, but recreation is still, I think, up in the air there. And so there's a lot of studies uh, breaking out there. There's some studies in Australia as well. There's a, just a $34 million grant given to an institution out of Sydney, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there, it's specifically for cannabinoid research. Um, so I think we're going to see some traction there. That's exciting to hear. Wow, this is all great stuff. So, Kevin, if you could tell our listeners the best way that they can find out more about medicinal genomics, Cortigen Life Sciences, the International Cannabinoid Research Society, ICRS, and how they can get involved, how they could apply, how they can learn more about all of this. Oh, sure. So uh, medicinalgenomics.com. If you go to that website, there'll be a page there for resources, and it will have a handful of presentations we've done on the work that we're doing in the cannabis genetics area. There's also a Canopedia website, and you can just Google Canopedia with a K, and you'll find this whole uh, blockchain distributed consensus system for the phylogenetics of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, the other stuff you'll find on Medicinal Genomics website are all of these mold and bacteria tests that we're putting out. The states are copying the California model and demanding that every pound to every five pounds get tested with six different tests. And we've converted all of those tests into quantitative PCR tests, and then we're rolling those out to markets in many states. Uh, Nevada's coming online very hard right now, as well as Oregon and Washington and Denver, Alaska, and D.C. They're all medically lit up. Mass is a little behind because hmm. we put too much faith in regulators in mass, and it turned into a mess, hmm. um, uh, not surprisingly. Right. Uh, and then uh, the Corrigan side is focused on clinical sequencing of those other disease areas like epilepsy, mitochondrial disease, and, and uh, autism. And they are looking to hire folks uh, that have uh, genetic counseling and pharmacogenetics background. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're regulated uh, along a CLIA and CAP model, which is still another voluntary, two different voluntary regulatory committees that more or less compete, which is great. We're, we're actually certified by both of them in all 49 states but New York. New York's always the last leg of hope in regulation, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll convert that New York one later this year. But uh, that's a very interesting field as well. The FDA is just starting to tamper with whether you can or can't sequence your genome. Okay. Right now it's a legal you can't we can't technically sequence your genome john uh you Hmm. have to get a doctor to write the script to do it because you might hurt yourself um (laughs) i say that in jest uh, (laughs) sounds uh, it sounds painful man it it does yeah yeah so you can go to either of those sites cortigen uh or medicinalgenomics.com and uh there'll be links there that relate to the the two different uh markets that the company's focused on but i think what you'll see over time is although they look like complete tangential fields 
uh, in the next five years, they're going to be completely overlapped that you won't notice the difference. Um, there's going to be so much effort in neurology that's related to cannabinoids that it's going to appear to be uh, not two different companies, but one, which is why it is, in fact, one right now. It's technically a wholly owned sub. Medicinal genomics is a wholly owned sub of Cortigen. Well, you know, so many people worldwide with chronic pain, people with seizures, people with autism, people with Alzheimer's, and so many people that need help. And, you know, if everybody put their voices together, we could really make a difference. I like to think what you're doing, I think, is crucial to the history of medicine. And I think it's just amazing. I'm so happy that you were able to join us today and to talk to our listeners about all this. Listeners, you've been listening to Kevin McKernan, the chief scientist of medicinal genomics and Cortigen Life Sciences. Kevin, any last words for our listeners? I think the Bitcoin world is so full of leapfrogging technologies that I encourage everyone who's in that space to try and collide it with this new personalized medicine revolution because uh, leapfrogging is what has to happen. It continues to happen in, in all technological fields and nowhere is it more obvious in these two spaces. And so the, the two should somehow merge and work together because I think it's, a, uh, it's an exciting field to completely disrupt the way healthcare uh, actually functions. And without healthcare, your Bitcoins aren't going to be worth much. Listeners, I hope you were listening listening to that because that's some important stuff. Kevin McKernan, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, John. I appreciate the time and, and all the effort here. Love the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Next time you're in Nashville, I hope we can get together again and have some more barbecue and beers at Drifters. Oh, you bet. I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> all right. Thanks, man. Good stuff. All right. Take care, John. All right. You too. All right, bye. Bye. This episode of Bitcoins and Gravy is brought to you by our good friends at MoonshineBootWax.com. Made by hand in small batches right here in East Nashville, Tennessee, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is the original, all-natural, non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is a proprietary blend of American beeswax and other fine, all-natural ingredients. It's specially formulated to feed and protect your leather while also offering an excellent long-lasting shine. Whether it's your cowboy boots, your expensive wing tips, or your wife's favorite pumps, Moonshine Boot Wax is a must-have for gentlemen who care about their appearance. Moonshine Boot Wax is proud to partner with Community Food Advocates, a nonprofit organization working to end hunger by creating a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Together with Community Food Advocates, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is making a positive difference in the Nashville community, one shine at a time. You can buy your very own 4-ounce tin today by going to moonshinebootwax.com. And best of all, you can pay using Bitcoin. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be He gave us all a protocol this world had never seen Or Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Or Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows
knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure. Everybody knows your name. Sing it. Oh Lord, pass me some more. Oh Lord, before I have to go. Oh Lord, pass me some more. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word, and today the magic word is genetics. G-E-N-E-T-I-C-S. As in the sentence, I'm thrilled that cannabis genetics is now being taken seriously, and I applaud the efforts of brilliant people like Kevin McKernan, whose intellect and moral compass make him a leader in the future of medicine and health for people worldwide. If you would like to hear more about my life in East Nashville, Tennessee, about the people and the places that make this place great, feel free to check out my recently launched podcast, East Nashville Now. It can be found by going to SoundCloud forward slash East hyphen Nashville hyphen now. I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Kevin McKernan. Kevin, thank you so much for the valuable work you're doing. And please know that we here in the Bitcoin community worldwide understand what you're doing and appreciate it more than you know. And I received an email the other day from a listener named Ron Frazier. Ron wrote, Hi, John. I heard your recent podcast about the documentary Bitcoin, The End of Money as We Know It. I was impressed and went out and bought it on Vimeo, then downloaded it. Just finished watching it. I really enjoyed it and thought it was really well done. It's a great introductory film with lots of good background on money systems. Good job on the narration. Looking forward to part two. In parentheses, he says, if there ever is one. Sincerely, Ron Frazier. Thanks, Ron. Much appreciated. Yes, this film just keeps getting better and better as more and more people find out about it. Bitcoin, the end of money as we know it. Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, here each week with my trusty dog, Maxwell, by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other, and remember that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, people. Write a book, send an email, a text, a tweet, make a phone call, start a blog or a podcast, knock on a door, do something. And remember the wise words of Dale Carnegie. Inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit home and think about it. Go out and get busy. See you next week, friends. We have front row seats in the development of a historic technology that is doing things that have never been done before. And every day that goes by, I just feel amazed at, at having this opportunity to be frontline observer and sometimes influencer in what is turning out to be perhaps a historic generational worldwide impactful disruptive change in technology, one that will create history. And that is an amazing feeling. Look closely. What do we all have in common? No matter what corner of the world you live in, you need food, water, shelter, and money. Half of every transaction involves money in exchange for goods or services, stocks, a loaf of bread, illegal drugs. You gotta pay for it. We spend much of our lives chasing money to make a living and accomplish our dreams. 
but it's also an instrument of destruction. Some might say evil, driving criminals to lie, steal, and even murder. The existing banking system extracts enormous value from society, and it is parasitic in nature. Money is a catalyst for the worst and the best of human endeavor. Before civilization, we created currency, fuel for wars, the path to power, champion and enemy of innovation. Money is so integral to our society and our global economy that its true nature remains a mystery to most. This is the story of money, perhaps the end of money as we know it. No matter how fat your bank account or how thin your wallet, to us it's all cold hard cash. There are some who want to kill it, get rid of it, burn your dollars, your euros, your yen, and transform every penny you have into ones and zeros. Digital currency, entrusted to the web and computers spread across the planet. Magic internet money. It's called cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Invented in secret, it was a gift to the world. It's not just a currency, but it's actually programmable money. A potential curse on bankers. And there's nothing that the, the big banks or politicians can do to stop it. Breaking every government's grip on money supply. What the internet did for information, Bitcoin is doing for money. Could it be the new gold? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, you have to really stretch your uh, imagination to infer what the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is. Regulators, the Federal Reserve, the banking system, at least understand this is a thing that they have to take seriously. This is going to change the economic culture. Bitcoin could be a microeconomic miracle worker, and it could be a macroeconomic wrecking ball. Is Bitcoin the currency of the future? A godsend for criminals? or a recipe for financial disaster. If you trust your money just as it is, we have a little story to share.